All right. We are here today with Mickey Reynolds, a friend of mine and also an incredible community builder and the founder of Grid 110. I've been meaning to sit down and talk to Mickey about her story. So I'm very jazzed to have this opportunity. Mickey, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. My pleasure. I would love for you to just tell everybody about yourself. How did you get here and what's your story? So I am a California girl, born and raised. I'm from the Bay Area originally, but I moved to LA to go to UCLA and I've just stayed ever since. I've been here for about 20 years now, so I guess I can consider myself an Angelino, even though I don't really cheer for any of the local sports teams outside of the UCLA Bruins. My heart is still very much in the Bay Area when it comes to sports. I've been in tech my entire career, so I went to UCLA. UCLA was a sociology major, didn't really know what I wanted to be or like what I wanted to study. I just knew that I came of age with the internet mm -hmm. and I was so fascinated by what AOL at the time and then like high speed internet and the dorms gave me access to in terms of resources, people, things that like were beyond my sphere of understanding mm -hmm. and comprehension. And I just knew I wanted to work in that world in whatever capacity that looked like. So I started out actually working for the movie studios on the digital teams for MGM and Fox and just kind of learning the ropes of managing digital products in the entertainment industry realized fairly quickly that I did not want to work in entertainment and I did not want to work for large corporations. It just felt like you're one of thousands. And while it was a really fun experience, because I feel like everybody that moves to LA wants to work in the entertainment industry in some way. And I found myself in that space and then quickly exited as soon as I could. I then kind of caught the bug for just building software products. And so I'm non-technical by background, but was a project manager, product manager, kind of managed a whole a slew of different types of software products being built and just really loved the idea of creating things that didn't exist. And I kind of came to a career crossroads maybe about seven or eight years ago where I was at a software development company. It was actually around this time, end of 2013, where we had to shut down the company and lay off the entire team. And I was the second in kind of command to the CEO at the time and had spent six years helping to build this company and to kind of have it all come to an end and not really know what I was going to do next. But I think a couple of things were really clear to me. And it was, I had spent like the first half of my career building things for other people, but not really excited about whether it's the environments or the actual products that I was building. And I felt like I was missing either a focus around whether it was like mission or values alignment, being really super excited about what we were building. I'd kind of climbed the startup like corporate ladder and had the car that I wanted and the office and the pay and like all of those things that you think that you're supposed to want when you get out of school, but was like burnt out and like supremely unhappy. And so I just took some time to just try and figure out like, what is it that I want to do in my career next? How do I want to feel every day? Who do I want to be surrounded by? And so a couple of things emerged for me. I live in downtown LA and most of the tech ecosystem, even still to this day, is kind of centered around the West side, right? So mm -hmm. Venice, Santa Monica, Playa Vista, but for those of us that live 16 miles to the east or even further, like it can take a while to get there. So I had worked on the west side most of my career. I did not want to make that commute anymore. I was looking for something closer to home and downtown was going through this like resurgence and renaissance or people actually wanted to come here. And I was like, where can I find something that's closer to home for me? How can I network my way into my next thing? And I was struggling to tap into that sense of community. Like mm -hmm. on the west side, I knew I could go to General Assembly because they hosted events or there were a couple of co-working spaces. 
but that sense of community or those opportunities just didn't feel like they existed like on the east side of LA. So two pathways emerged for me from that. One was I actually joined General Assembly and I helped them to launch their second LA-based location, which was in downtown LA. And so I spent three years there kind of building up the community. And for somebody who, one, I'm a hard eye introvert, being around people in social environments and have like mild social anxiety around people that I don't know. So having to hit the pavement and throw events and meet people and schmooze and like all of that stuff, it was really hard for me at first, but I was very excited about the opportunity because I was getting to build the thing that I felt was missing for me. And at the same time, I connected with this group of people who ended up becoming the founding team for Grid 110, all entrepreneurs who lived or worked in downtown, felt like downtown similarly had the potential to be the next startup hub, but was missing some key things and wanted to see what we could do to help solve problems for entrepreneurs here. So I did both of those simultaneously for a while. And then when we got Grid 110 off the ground, I actually had the opportunity to come on full-time about five years ago to step into the, our first executive director role and actually run the organization. And it's been a whirlwind since then. How did you guys get connected to the mayor's office and have that partnership starting with Eric Garcetti? And that's an incredible accomplishment. How did that come about? Yeah, so we spent about a year talking, trying to figure out what it is that we were going to build and what this was going to look like. We talked to a bunch of different stakeholders. So again, like the rest of the team, mostly entrepreneurs, or they worked or lived here. They wanted to basically create the community that we felt like didn't exist for ourselves again. We talked to building owners in the area because what we came to understand was at the time on the West side as the, I guess this was like the 2.0 of startups in LA in 2014-ish, rent was becoming expensive because mm -hmm. more startups were there. They were taking up more space. It was becoming like a hotbed for activity and rent was becoming incredibly expensive, office rent as well as residential. But in downtown LA, they have these like high rise towers. There's about 6 million square feet of empty office space in these buildings. And they're typically used to leasing to accounting firms and law firms that take up hundreds of thousands of square feet for 10 years at a time. And they're trying to see how they can attract more tech and creative companies to the downtown area. And, but they're going about it from a more like traditional commercial real estate perspective of they don't know early stage startups. They don't know that these companies are small and don't know if they're going to exist in six months and are still wanting them to sign a multi-year lease. And so we basically were talking to them about, you have all this empty space. Why don't you let us help you like program it, do something that we're, you can use it as a marketing opportunity. Let's do something around events or programs or things for startups. We were basically pitching co-working to them at a time where co-working hadn't hit its heyday yet. Somebody in our team was connected to the mayor's office on the economic development team. And we just kind of kept on conversations with them about, look, you're very pro-tech mayor. You want to see high paying tech jobs here in the city. But most of those tech jobs are in Santa Monica. They're like not in city of Los Angeles proper. And we want to focus on areas that have been overlooked or underserved, but have potential. And are there any opportunities for us to work together around something like this? And so they took their time and kind of did some due diligence background checks on all of us to make sure that we were legit. And then right as we were basically announcing kind of our first partnership with one of the largest building owners in downtown, they finally came on and said, look, we'd love 
for this to be a mayor's office initiative because we really believe and support in the work that you're doing. And we want to see innovation in more areas of Los Angeles. And we want to see more companies supported and jobs created. And so they were happy to come on as a like official partner. That's awesome. And I love that you have just generally been either scratching your own itch or just finding a problem that exists and wanting to just solve it. I feel like I've also followed a very similar trajectory where I'm just saying yes to random things and they kind of work out. And I'm very bad at strategically planning my career and kind of just do whatever I feel like doing. And it always ends up working out. But yours sounds a lot less chaotic than my path. (laughs) It like I can connect the dots now, but it was not clear at all at that time. So like the catalyst moment for essentially losing my job, becoming unemployed for the first time in my career, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do next. Like I, do I do the same thing that I've been doing for the past 10 years? No, because I was miserable. Um, What does that look like? And what are the opportunities that are out there? And I think the thing that I have come to learn and I've really embraced is creating the things, whether they are opportunities, jobs, communities, that like don't exist that yeah. you wish existed at the time. And if you feel like you're sensing that I wish I had this or like, why mm-hmm. doesn't this exist? And instead of waiting for somebody else to do it, like, mm-hmm. why not you? Yeah. I didn't have any experience in community building or uh, even relationships or I just hit pounded the pavement and yeah. got out of my comfort zone to talk to people about who's doing anything in downtown in tech startups, entrepreneurship. I'd love to talk to them and then ask them the same thing. Who do you know that I should talk to and Mm -hmm. what events are happening down here? Previously, I was such a workaholic. I had no friends outside of like my college friends and my work colleagues. I worked all the time and now having to actually be social to try and figure out like my pathway was very uncomfortable for me. But it's something that I'm so grateful that I did and continue to do of like those times where you're like, ooh, like my intuition is I don't really want to do this. But Mm -hmm. that's when you're like, lean into that. That's Mm -hmm. probably the thing that you should pull that thread. Go to that thing that you're like maybe hesitant about going or talking to that person because you're afraid they won't respond or Mm -hmm. they'll say no or whatever it might be. So yeah, I think it's like just taking the initiative to create the things that don't exist. And especially for you also have really helped kind of open doors or created new opportunities that beyond your wildest imagination, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I also feel like that's so important. The more I meet people in tech who some of them are very successful and I realize, especially ones who come from a certain kind of background or achieved so much success because they just went for it and they were by no means more qualified. They just believed that they could do it. And now uh, it is such a practice for me to try to lean into that energy more. That's one of the things that I wish I could tell my younger self. Yeah. I saw a video clip. One of our alumni founders was sitting on a panel at the recent LA summit and her name's Shiloh Johnson. She's the CEO and founder of a company called Compliant. She's a force and phenomenal. I love hearing her speak whenever I have the opportunity to. And she said something to the effect of her as a black woman in tech, she she told herself that she has to be undeniable in this space. She is going to be so good and so driven that you can't not want to root for her, want to invest in her, like just get out of her way so that she can do the thing that she needs to do. And I think that kind of conviction Mm -hmm. yourself, we talk a lot about self-doubt and imposter syndrome, especially as women and women of color in spaces where we don't see ourselves, where we don't have like the possibility models where 
we are held to a different standard, have to have sometimes that level of undeniable conviction in yourself and what you're building so that nobody else can get in your way and can deny you the opportunities that you have worked so hard for. Totally. What comes up for me often is, yes, we talk about imposter syndrome, but I think to just say, oh, it's just a confidence thing is a little bit gaslighting because it's no, actually there are so many structural things. And so what I'm always trying to balance is the thing that I always want to leave people with whenever they consume my content is I can't do it. It feels a little bit more possible. And at the same time, acknowledging that people have different starting lines. We don't have equal opportunity. And I, that is a puzzle that I have not learned to solve, but I'm wondering if that ever comes up for you, because in a way we kind of are doing parallel things where we want to create resources to support founders, especially from marginalized communities. And so how do you navigate that? How do you help people see possibilities and arm them with resources, but also acknowledge that it's not always the same. The path is not the same at all. Yeah, it's definitely something that I have personally struggled with, even just, am I the person to do this? And when we started this organization, I'm not an entrepreneur. I call myself an accidental entrepreneur because mm-hmm. I never wanted to start a thing. I have built things before, but I'm never thinking about, like, oh, that I wanted to be the CEO of this app and then raise money for it. It was just like, no, this doesn't exist. So like, maybe I should build it or work with a friend to do something like that. And when it came to Grid 110, it was, again, just like, I had the good fortune of being in a group of people. So there were seven people as the original co-founding team. So we all brought unique strengths, Mm -hmm. relationships, backgrounds to the table, things that we were each kind of uniquely qualified to make this thing into existence. And there was never a time where I was like, I want to lead this or even when we, so when I came on board as our executive director, it was in our year three. We had done this as like a committee and had essentially bootstrapped it, had scraped together funding from corporate sponsors and just whatever we needed to cover the overhead costs of the business. Nobody was getting paid for it. And it was at this point where we had some outcomes. We run a startup accelerator. So we run cohort-based programs for early stage entrepreneurs. And we ran one program a year for the first two years, basically providing six months of free office space, mentorship, and resources to five companies. So it was like 10 to 15% of each of our time, sometimes one giving more than a little bit more than the other, but nobody was getting paid and we didn't have any consistent funding. And then it was at the end of year two, having some outcomes of seeing where the companies were able to go post-program, that they were able to get office space in downtown, double, triple the size of their teams, increase their revenue. We actually had a company get acquired after year one. And we took that back to the mayors and said, look what we've done. Our, Our hypothesis was true that if we can allow these companies to focus on their internal kind of operations and specific milestones that we feel like their jobs will be created, they'll grow their revenue, maybe they'll get funding. Do you know of any funding opportunities that are available for an organization like ours? And we're a nonprofit. We started this really with the design of this is the quickest way that we can get up and running. There's different stakeholders that we were talking to. They were all like, we can give you in-kind support or marketing resources or CSR dollars if you do this as a nonprofit. And we weren't really thinking about how to monetize this for us. It was just like, again, we need to build this for the community. And so we went back to the mayor's office and said, this is what we've been able to achieve. Are there any grant or funding opportunities that you know of that we're available for? And so they helped us essentially apply for city funding. And I helped put together the budget for this like city funding that would allow us to hire our first executive director and a program manager. Never thought it was going to be me. 
me. <laughs> I was like, I will help hire somebody because I was still at General Assembly at the time. And once we actually got the funding, which was like about six months later, I was at a point in my career where I was like, okay, I've hit a ceiling here at GA and I'm looking for something to do next. And it just happened to line up with us getting the funding and talking to the rest of the team about, look, they all run their own companies, so they're not interested in taking this role, but they would love for it to be one of us. So kind of one by one, they're like, have you thought about doing this? And at first I was like, uh, what? I, I, me? And I had a lot of fear and anxiety about that. I'm not the right person to do this. This feels like such a huge risk for me. I don't know the first thing about running a nonprofit, but I got really excited about the idea of having helped build this from the ground up and then seeing where we could potentially take it and especially leveraging a lot of the relationships that I had built while at GA. Talked to a few people and it was like the right, the nudge in the right direction. Of, this is where I need to go next. But like every day I'm always like second guessing myself. And, and I think it's just a matter of surrounding yourself with the right people and having whether it's a board or like your personal board of advisors. I've definitely leaned into some of those in particular in like the past few months. I know that you're like a few steps ahead of me or you've been through a situation that I haven't been through before. Like, how did you handle it? And we do that very similar thing with our companies. So really important for them to see and hear from experiences of people, whether they are leaps and bounds ahead of them, have raised hundreds of millions of dollars have maybe have exited, but it's also helpful for them to hear about people that are just a few steps ahead. Yeah. And it feels a little bit more accessible. It feels a little more approachable. They can talk about like, how did they navigate their fundraising journey as a black woman or as a parent or mm -hmm. as a number of different factors? I think the community aspect has become such a huge component of our program and that founders can see themselves reflected back in the community, in our guest speakers, in our team. And it feels like a place that was like intentionally designed for them, make mm -hmm. them feel like they belong in this world, they belong as a CEO, as a founder, that you can raise money, you can do this thing because you see other people who have done it too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like intentionality in designing communities like that is really important. That's beautiful. And I've noticed similar things when I was running my community of direct consumer female founders is, first of all, there's a reason I made it female founders because I want, I wanted them to learn from each other and connect with each other. And also I did notice that people love to hear from somebody who's just a few steps ahead because it feels more accessible. And also that knowledge on the part of the person sharing their story and their lessons, it's so fresh, right? It's so top of mind. So their sort of acute sense of empathy for that specific part of the journey, a few steps prior is still so alive. So I love like connecting those dots. And it sounds like you've been also doing that in the LA community, which I love. So I think that's a really good seg. I have so many questions for you, but I noticed <laughs> time is kind of flying. So we're going to seg to the fundraising part. When you are sitting down with new founders, new entrepreneurs and breaking down venture capital from the start, how do you explain it? And how would you introduce them to how to fundraise, which is a big question. <laughs> Yeah. So we've kind of taken the philosophy that there are so many things that you need to do first before you even think about fundraising for your company. And our curriculum is really intentionally designed. So we have a 12-week virtual program, meets once a week. Any talk about fundraising doesn't happen until the latter quarter of the program because there are so many just like foundational elements that we want to make sure that you get right first to set yourself up for success, to even understand like what kind of company are you building? How big is this opportunity? 
who has the pain point? How big is the pain point? Are they willing to pay for it? Have you talked to anybody to validate that this is an actual pain point? So we start really making sure that you understand the problem that you're solving. To your point earlier, how we started out with Grid 110 was what are the problems to solve for entrepreneurs? And then it was, okay, these seem to be some problems. What are some potential solutions? Or like, what do we care about? And what are we getting a sense that people actually need? And so it's really trying to validate that first. We make sure that they're doing their customer discovery. So do you have an understanding of your current customer persona profile? And what can you share about that with us? If you don't, go talk to your customers then. Spend two weeks doing interviews or surveys. Drop a survey into a Facebook group or something if you don't mm -hmm. have customers yet. I think there are a ton of different ways that you can just do, again, this really foundational work to make sure that regardless of the funding pathway that you go after, every business needs to have this. And this is why we like reset with every company. So regardless of the type of company that we're working with, regardless of if you have customers, no customers, revenue, no revenue, everybody starts at the same place. And oftentimes, this can be a very, a process where that introduces a lot of friction because sometimes founders haven't talked about like any of this stuff before, or maybe their customer has changed. The pandemic shifted a lot of things for people, for people having to reassess who their customer was or if their product was even needed at the time. So we make sure that people have a good baseline before we talk about anything that has to do with funding. I've seen so many people, I think when we talk about what's a good fit for our programs, if you're coming to our program because you solely want to fundraise, you might not be a good fit for us because there are so many other things that are important to just figuring out if you have a viable business opportunity to begin with. And then once you have the solid foundation, then we'll talk to you about what are the different pathways that exist in terms of funding because there are a lot, there are many, but we always, especially in tech and in startups, like you only hear about venture capital. It's the thing that makes all the tech headlines, these like huge funding announcements of somebody raising five, $50 million of a fund raising 50 to $100 million to invest. It just like, it it like steals all the energy when the number or the percentage of businesses that actually receive venture capital, it's less than 1% of all businesses, but it dominates when it comes to attention and focus. And there is this really interesting like power dynamic between founders and VCs. And it often just becomes a little bit unhealthy because venture capital, as we were talking about earlier, before we got hopped on, it's like it was designed a long time ago to work for a specific type of business. It's essentially fund managers who are managing other people's money. So whether they're endowments, foundations, corporations, what have you, and their whole job is a return on that investment. So they're money managers. And so they have to be very selective in what they then invest in. And I think you'll hear the statistics of VCs will see 2,000, 5,000 pitches a year and invest in a small percentage fraction of that. And they're thinking about it of each investment that I make has to return my entire fund. And so they're looking for big, massive opportunities that are gonna go on and have a an IPO or get acquired for like millions, if not billions of dollars. And there are very specific types of companies that are meant to do that. Not all companies are meant to do that. And I think it becomes really dangerous for a lot of companies who get fixated on venture capital when it is actually not the right funding mechanism for your business. And so I think it's really important to understand one, like just demystify what the heck is VC? What does this mean? Let's bring in 
an actual venture capitalist to talk to you about the business side of it and help you understand like from their perspective, what are they looking for? What makes sense for this business? How do they make money? And what are the expectations that they have? So it's not like that they're just saying no because they don't like your idea. It's that they they just they don't think it's big enough or mm-hmm. they for the amount of money that they're investing, they just don't think that they'll get the return that they need. And so that's how they're making their decisions. It is to invest in innovation, but it also has to be like a very massive opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that leaves ninety nine point nine percent of businesses looking for other options and oftentimes when they try and go the venture capital route it can destroy their business because their business was not designed for that i think a lot of people liken vc to jet fuel like rocket fuel like something that is made to accelerate a business and and go massively far but you wouldn't put jet fuel in like a honda civic or any kind of regular car or even like a luxury car so you have to find the right fuel for your business Mm -hmm. and so i think it's really important to get a better understanding of what that looks like and we've got the traditional loans that exist out there but for most startups they don't have the track record or the revenue to be able to apply for a loan so where does that leave them in their first one to two years of business do they go after like smaller investment opportunities from like angel investors do they focus on revenue and just bootstrap you've bootstrapped a business before right so what was your decision making process around did you think about raising capital for potion you've had a, a number of businesses now that you've thought about this for so what has been your thought process around it Yeah, that's a great question. So for Potion, I knew it wouldn't be a fit for Venture because it was a retail store. And we were buying 50% off the retail price from fragrance suppliers, basically these niche perfumeries. Plus, we had to sell a lot of samples, plus all the sort of operational costs of running an e-commerce business. And actually, I was losing money on that business, which is the real reason. And then I ran out of money to lose on it. So I was like, maybe I should stop doing this. But at the time, it was just a tough business to run and it was not scalable. So it was really a matter of this is not venture scale. And I knew that at the time and I didn't have any intention of raising capital for it. With Make Lane, I remember toying around with a lot of ideas where I could slightly pivot the vision to make it potentially venture scale around like 2020. And then 2021 is when I really started kind of having those preliminary conversations and figuring out, can this be an ad tech play that could be potentially venture scale? Could I raise capital? At the time, everybody was investing in everything too. It was such a crazy period in venture. So I was trying to do that, but I also have to say that every time I would try to slightly tweak the vision, it didn't feel right in my heart and I had so much resistance to it and I would kind of stop and start these conversations constantly and I was like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I do this? And I just chalked it up to maybe I have imposter syndrome, but looking back, I think maybe there was that, but I also think this is not the right path for me and I know this and I don't want to turn this into something where I always have to be thinking about raising the next funding round. And that's what also founders need to understand is once you get on that path, Unless you become profitable very quickly, even then, once you raise one round, it's more standard to periodically raise capital. And when you do that, you start to build your business thinking about investors as well as customers. And so Mm -hmm. if you don't want to do that, and if you want to be entirely the master of your own destiny and just solely focused on your customers, at least this is what I think I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. I think you really need to 
like talk to other founders and try to truly get a sense of what is it like for founders, especially maybe if you're mission driven, right? If you really care about the vision and you're not just playing the game of, I don't even care what I build. I just want to build a billion dollar company, exit, and then go to the Bahamas or whatever. If that's what you want to do, then I guess get that back. But if you really care about preserving what you're building and not being beholden to investors, I think that's also something that is really important to consider. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, we talk a lot about what does equity mean? And especially when you're talking about underrepresented founders, specifically like black and brown, equity is ownership. And the more equity you give up and dilute yourself, the less ownership that you have in your company. And that's so important when talking to communities that have had things taken from them or have been just historically and systemically excluded from opportunities of ownership. And small businesses are like the backbone of this country. And Latino women are creating businesses at a faster rate than any other demographic. And it's really important to understand what you give up in exchange for equity and for investment in your company. It's not free money. It's actually the most expensive form of funding. So when people think about, oh, I don't want to go into debt. Oh, I don't want to pay this like X percent of interest on a loan. That X percent of interest equates to like a very fixed rate number that may be high, but at least you know what it is. Yeah. With venture capital, the 5, 10, 20% of your company, should you meet the expectations that they're trying to, you could be giving up one, a large percentage of your company, and then you're beholden to them from a decision-making standpoint. But then that ends up costing you way more than a loan might have. Yeah. So I think a lot of people just really need to understand what it means to have somebody on your cap table, what it means to give up ownership in your company and VCs will tell you, like, hold off on taking investment for as long as you can. They will tell you that venture is not meant for most companies. Try to find a different way. This should be like your last resort in some way. And I think to your point around being able to talk to other founders, like the peer aspect, like peer mentorship and community mm -hmm. aspect is so important for founders. Entrepreneurship is such an isolating and lonely place to be a founder, like whether you have a co-founder or a team. It's tough and it's not like you're not doing something that hasn't been done before, but you get in your head about certain things and then there's responsibility when it comes to as you grow your team and just the the weight on your shoulders of the decisions mm -hmm. that you're making of where you want to take this company and to have a peer group. So whether it's joining like your community or a program like ours that really puts you in a place and centers community around the experience so that you can have other people that even if they're building a different business from you, that you can get advice or counsel or even just to be able to celebrate the small wins or to commiserate the challenges. I think it's really important to find, even if it's not a larger community, a couple of other founders that you mm -hmm. can check in with, that you can tap into, that can be part of that advisory board for you so that if you're trying to figure out how to handle an investor conversation or how do my finances need to look if I want to go after some of these other funding opportunities, navigating HR things. So I think that's super key. Yeah. I want to go back to raising venture. So we discussed how very few businesses are actually a fit for venture. And also it's challenging to raise capital, especially in 2022. For somebody who does decide, I think this is right for me, where do you suggest that they start if they don't know anything about venture capital and they don't have a bunch of friends who can make intros for them? Like, where do you start if you don't have the resources, knowledge, or network? The internet, my favorite place. Uh, all the resources are at, like, 
really out there. You have to get curious and you have to be diligent. You have to spend some time allocating to research. Like you are probably the research queen. Like I've seen your Instagram stories and the deep dives that you do, like even just for one TikTok that you do, (laughs) right? And like the deep dive and the amount of time that you spend really thoroughly understanding, researching. I think you have to be that diligent around your business also and understanding the space. There are a couple of different books out there. So if you want to understand like venture capital specifically, Secrets of Sand Hill Road is a really great book. You can check it out from the library. You can get it off of Libby. Like you can go to whatever your local bookstore. There are definitely resources out there that are free and accessible or like low cost. Tons of podcasts. The one that I really like and enjoy listening to is The Pitch. Love The Pitch. (laughs) And I think it's great because you hear both sides of it, right? Like you hear how somebody crafted the narrative and the storytelling around their pitch. And then you hear the investors, the Mm -hmm. questions that they have, and maybe hear about what they're interested in or the feedback. And they have all different types of businesses on there, like both tech and non-tech. And there's different investors on the show. So you can hear from their different perspectives of what they're interested in, what they see, maybe come back to me in a little bit once you've been able to do X, Y, and Z. So I think it's just being exposed to the language, seeing some of the questions that they might ask and being even prepared to answer some of those questions yourself. Medium is a great place. Twitter is amazing, especially for a tech and VC. It can become a little overwhelming for sure. I definitely want to cleanse my feed every now and then because I followed way too many people in this industry. And I'm just like, I just want to look at cute puppies and cooking videos. But um, books, podcasts, lots of resources online. Both Techstars and YC have like online startup schools that have really great videos that like similarly to our curriculum really start at the solving, like what is the problem that you're solving all the way through like how to craft a pitch, your financial model that you might have to present. What are some things that you should have in your pitch deck And so I think just being able to kind of check off those things and make sure that you understand this space really well, understand what people are looking for when it comes to this, and then just start talking to people. A lot of entrepreneurs, they're timid about talking about what they're working on because they don't want somebody to steal their Mm -hmm. idea, or maybe they're afraid of feedback, but you have to get really comfortable asking for feedback if you in particular want to fundraise because you'll want to get feedback on one, your business and like what it is that you're tackling. How do you communicate that? Whether it's through just the, your elevator pitch, your email, cold email to somebody, your actual like pitch that you're presenting. You want to get feedback on that. Is there more clarity that somebody needs to provide? Changing up the order of something or I don't think you're quite getting it. Like maybe mm-hmm. revise this or that. So I think it's again, if you can find community spaces where you can be around other founders or do office hours with somebody, go to conferences stalk people on Twitter. There's a number of ways that you can just try to immerse yourself in this space, particularly if you're not familiar with it. Maybe you're non-technical, so this is completely brand new to you. Like just find other people who are in kind of a sim space as you are. I think that's why Clubhouse got so big over the Mm -hmm. pandemic is like we were craving community Mm -hmm. and connecting with other people when we were all stuck at home and worrying about is the world going to end. And I want to underscore the point of Talking to other founders who have recently raised, especially founders who are in your vertical, because I find that the thing that I love most about the startup world is it's generally a very pay it forward culture and people are so generous and willing to give advice and willing to help because everybody had to get to where they got to by other people opening doors for them, making intros for them, giving them advice, because none of this is obvious. There's no reason why you should know any of this. So 
talking to other founders, not being afraid to reach out to like even founders that you admire on LinkedIn. I feel like with a well-crafted, like cold message that can be so powerful because often the advice I give to people who say, how do I get intros to VCs if I don't have a network is it's a lot easier to actually get intros to other founders or not even intros, but just connect to other founders who know the VCs. And then once you start to build up that small army of advocates and they can introduce you, I'm curious what kind of advice you give to people who are wondering, like, how do I get those intros to investors? Yeah. So it's really interesting because I, there's a a debate around the intro and like the warm intro versus the cold intro, right? Because the warm intro means that you have to have a connection, a relationship. You have to be in the inner circle or have access to the inner circle when most people, again, specifically underrepresented founders do not. And so it feels like it's gatekeeping in a way of having to know somebody who can make you an intro or can connect you to this person. And oftentimes warm intros from an investor's perspective, they're heavily weighted because especially if it's coming from someone that they trust. So whether they're investing in them, they will vouch for them. Investors see so many companies a year. The amount of time that they actually spend looking at like a deal or an opportunity, or even when they're doing diligence and talking to founders, they don't typically spend that much time. So they're making a massive financial decision and investment on maybe a couple hours, like cumulatively when you look at it. And so having a recommendation or a warm intro from someone, it just increases the chance that they'll actually like look at the business and maybe look beyond however you might be pitching it if somebody else pitches it better for you. So I struggle with that. I've made warm introductions on behalf of our founders all the time, but I think the culture seems to be slowly warming up to cold intros where there are now funds that were like, we don't take warm intros. So for example, Mm -hmm. I was talking to Chingona Ventures. I was like, can I send you founders? They're like, sure, but we don't take any warm intros. Everybody fills out the same type form. We look at every single application. We will respond to every single one. I think Hustle Fund does the same thing. So there's a growing number of funds out there that are trying to democratize. And I'm sure it's also just for their own processes. Mm -hmm. They can streamline and be more efficient. They are more open because they don't want to miss an opportunity. And they recognize that if your specifically white male investors have been known to pattern match and invest in white men founders. And so if your network is only you, how are you going to see outside of that space and invest in opportunities that maybe you don't understand because you don't have that lived experience, but is going to be the next billion dollar opportunity. And to be able to try and democratize the access to that so that it is less relationship based and more Mm -hmm. so on the merit of the business and opportunity. So we try to at least, I think, kind of explain what the status quo seems to be like right now. And yes, try to get a warm intro if you can, but then also try to have compelling materials so Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you're doing a cold email that you've got a very punchy brief overview of what you're doing with the most important metrics or KPIs for your business that show that you are trending up and to the right. So that at a glance at the like 30 seconds that they look at the email and the Mm -hmm. two and a half minutes that they look at your deck, that they will get it, right? That they will get what you're Mm -hmm. doing. And you have to be undeniable. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why getting feedback on all of those materials and making sure that 
you know, what you are trying to communicate is clearly articulated is really important because you don't want to have to have them do the mental gymnastics to see what's going on in your head. They have to see what's in front of them. And so I think there's a ton of lists of investors that are out there that are floating around. So there's Airtable lists and Excel sheets of investors that have put themselves out there. They're like, hey, we want to see more diverse founders. And so Mm -hmm. we're putting our information out here. Please contact us if you meet XYZ criteria. Invest in this specific industry, Mm -hmm. this stage. This is my average check size. If you match this, then let's have a conversation and talk. But it's really important that the founder does that like diligence and work Mm -hmm. in making sure that they're reaching out to the right person. Like Mm -hmm. you don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste their time. And the smarter that you can be in terms of honing in and refining your target list of the right types of funders, and then asking them at the end, like if you get connected with them, who would they recommend that you speak with also? Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important point, really doing your due diligence on who the investor is, what they tend to invest in, what stage they tend to invest in. And also once you get past that initial hurdle of getting connected to the investors, knowing that the pitch is a two-way conversation, it's not just you begging them to give you money. You are also in a way interviewing them to decide if you want this person to own a chunk of your company that you're going to spend the next several years of your life building because you are hopefully enriching them in a way, right? So do you like them? Do you trust them? Do you want them to be on your cap table? Investors need founders too. And just remember that you are also presenting them with an opportunity and having that conviction in yourself is going to help you realize that you are giving them a chance to have a piece of something great. So absolutely. Yeah. When we tell that with our companies all the time, that like we feel lucky and privileged to be part of your entrepreneurial journey. And Oftentimes they're like, oh, I'm so excited I got into the program and I'm so grateful and thank you for believing in me. And we're like, no, thank you for believing in us to be a part of this, that we get to work with you on this and help however we can. And we tell the founders that like any investor conversation that you have, that privilege also extends. Like they are lucky to sit down at the table and talk to you. That's their whole job is their job is to meet and invest in founders and innovation, and you are giving them that opportunity to be a part of it. And I think it's just, it's exactly what you said. goes back to the undeniable and the conviction in yourself because you're going to do this with or without them. Mm -hmm. And that you want them to know it'd probably be better if you were with them, but you don't need them, especially if you have a strong business. And I think if you have that mentality and you think about it that way, that this would be an incredible opportunity for their fund and that you are going to kill it, that they'll be grateful to have been on your cap table. If you think about it and you flip that power dynamic, like that's the mentality that you should have. Absolutely. Let's talk about alternative funding sources, especially non-dilutive ones. You wrote this incredible Medium article with Geffen, who, funnily enough, is somebody I got connected to on Twitter a few months ago. I think she found my TikTok or I don't know how we got connected. And then it turns out recently she hosted an event for her coffee company at the house I used to live in LA oh. before I moved out. <laughs> yeah. So, And I told her that. I was like, wait, do you realize I used to live there? And she was like, no way. That's amazing. So very small world. But I I wanted us to touch on some of those alternative forms of funding because I do think that learning about venture is great, especially if it's potentially a viable option for you. But there are other options out there and I want people to know about them. So give us the breakdown. 
Yeah. So non-dilutive capital is great. So we were talking about venture capital before, which is equity-based. I invest in you and you're going to give me a percentage of equity in your company. You're going to dilute down your ownership because you're giving up ownership. Non-dilutive capital, you're not giving up anything. You're not getting diluted. It's basically like free money. And so that could be in the form of a grant. So I think a lot of people think that grants are typically for only nonprofits and they come from foundations particularly in the last few years. And as there has been this like demand to invest in more underrepresented founders, specifically black founders kind of post George Floyd and Latinx founders, given that they're becoming the majority of the city, the state, like the country, but a mere fraction of funds get invested in them. So there have been larger corporations, foundations, other entities that are creating kind of non-dilutive capital pools for founders because they want to invest in innovation. We have two partners that we work with as part of our program. All our programs are no equity taken, so no cost, no equity. So they're completely free for founders to participate in. They typically don't come with any funding either, with the exception of these two programs. So one is a nationwide program called Friends and Family, which is in partnership with the Venture Capital Fund, Lawson & Co. It's such a good name, by the way. I always (laughs) think that whenever I see it on social media. Yeah. And it's really around filling this friends and family gap. And so typically when you're first starting a business, before you go out and get like institutional capital from VCs, they want to see you turn to your own network and scrape together whatever funds that you need to. So that could be like from your savings, maybe you're self-funding it. And then there's this term for people who aren't familiar called friends and family. And it's again, because of the archaic system of funding that you could go to your mom, uncle, grandmother and get 25, 50, $100,000 from your immediate network and circle of friends to be able to start a business. Most people don't have that. And it's actually kind of insulting when you tell somebody that they should just raise a friends and family round. They're looking around and being like, I don't know anybody with that kind of just like spare cash hanging around. And so friends and family was really created to fill that gap. It's a $25,000 non-dilutive grant that is paired with our program to kind of be that like Kickstarter catalyst capital for founders to be able to, whether it's buying inventory, building your prototype, making a first hire, investing in marketing, like whatever you need to get to the next stage of your business. And then we have a second program that is a local program focused on Black and Latinx entrepreneurs in LA County specifically with the Annenberg Foundation and Pledge LA, which is a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. Very similarly, $25,000 non-dilutive capital paired with our program. That's one example of a grant. So like money free and clear, you also get a program and an amazing community to participate in. Some programs just give you the money and there's no kind of support, no community. And grants can range anywhere from $500 to maybe $50,000, $100,000. So there's lots of opportunities online to kind of seek these things out. Plug for our newsletter, the Grid 110 newsletter. We send out once a month that has a ton of different programs, grant opportunities that our team comes across and wants to share and amplify with people. There are some resources on social media that will share those too. Then there's a traditional kind of loans that you can take out. You can be using a business credit card just to help with cash flow purposes, right? So you're not coming straight out of your pocket, but maybe you want to like bank some points that you can be able to buy a business trip that you need to, and then building your business credit at the same time. And then you and I are both really familiar with Republic and other equity crowd investing platforms, which similarly to like a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo, allow you to raise kind of individual 
dollars from the crowd. And so whether that is your own personal network of people and being able to ask them to invest in you and not asking them for tens of thousands of dollars, but usually at a minimum, a hundred dollars. It's fairly recent. I think I want to say 2015 or 2017 when the SEC actually enabled everyday people like you and I to actually be able to invest in private companies that was not allowed before then. So you can invest in public companies on the stock market through apps like Robinhood, but you were never had the opportunity to invest in like startups until this law was made and these platforms came about. So platforms like Republic and WeFunder that allow you to raise small amounts of money from hundreds of people. And then the thing that I love the most about, about these platforms, what there is an equity exchange for them, so they're not fully non-dilutive, but you don't jump on the treadmill or the hamster wheel of venture capital where there is this expectation. You're basically giving up a very small percentage of your equity to a bunch of different people. Also, it democratizes the opportunity to invest in companies for everyday people. And so before you have to be an accredited investor, which means that you either make over $200,000 as a single person or over $300,000 as a couple or have like a million dollars in like liquidity to be able to invest in startups, which is what angel investors can do. And so again, there's gatekeeping and barriers around who's allowed to do that. And these equity crowd investing platforms have enabled anybody, regardless of how much you make and only having to allocate like a hundred bucks if you want to or more to invest in companies. And so I think these are really cool, innovative ways of startups being able to raise money. And then I think the one that people always forget about is revenue, like focusing on revenue, like revenue is a funding source. (laughs) Yeah, People will say, don't listen to investors, listen to your customers, because they're the ones who are going to lead you into growing your business. They're the ones that you are serving. You're not serving your investors, like you're serving your customers. And so the closer that you can be to them, the better that you can understand them, the more successful that you can be. And I think that when you're focused on the revenue piece of it, maybe you don't have to go after outside funding. And it's like at the end of the day, revenue is going to allow you to sustain your business and make the decisions that are best for you. Absolutely. And I also think that for some people who look at other founders easily raising venture capital with the back of the napkin idea, that might seem better in some ways. But actually, I often think, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this, I often think that the founders for whom maybe that's not as accessible, who are forced to really be disciplined and count every dollar and be so diligent about building the foundations of a strong product and strong business. If you do that, you might actually end up building a stronger business than somebody who raises a lot of capital and just kind of throws that out a bunch of different things experimentally. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that might end up serving you better in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent agree. And I think oftentimes when you're just raising capital and trying to figure out like what you're building and just throwing money at the situation, you're not necessarily going about it the right way. But if you do the opposite, again, staying close to your customers, understanding the pain point, it becomes your North Star. And you get very clear on the problem that you're solving, who you're solving it for, why this matters, why you care about this versus, okay, here's a bunch of money, now go build something and doing it backwards. And it allows you to determine, do you want to build a venture scale business? Yeah. And I think that's a really important decision that you have to make. Like just because you start a company, whether it's tech or non-tech, like you don't have to go that pathway. Like Mm -hmm. you can still build a big business without taking venture capital or even only taking one round. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people don't understand, like, again, the pathways that are in front of them. It is pretty 
fascinating how being in tech can distort your idea of what success looks like because we're exposed to all these stories of billion dollar exits and funding rounds of hundreds of millions of dollars. But actually there are so many milestones that could be life-changing that are not nearly that high or just like businesses that are so healthy and thriving and so important to the community or to your customers. And I wish we talked about that more. And I do agree that there's this sort of like glamorization of venture-backed entrepreneurship. That's something that I wish more people would talk about. So. Yeah, I hate the term lifestyle business, but it's a common term for businesses that are not necessarily venture scale businesses, maybe traditional small business, but it's essentially coined that way because it's to support whatever the lifestyle is that the founder wants to have, right? So if you want to be able to work X number of hours a week and take off whatever time you want to take or support your family, build a generational, like whatever it might be you're designing in a way that it's sustainable and that you have full control. And I think that maybe it just needs a different name other than lifestyle businesses because venture capitalists will often just look down on lifestyle business. Like you're not a venture scale business, you're more of a lifestyle business. And that has a bad connotation, but in theory and like the concept of it, it's actually not that bad. Like we had a company that we worked with a couple of years ago, they knew like they were not building a venture scale business and they just wanted to be able to make enough where they could go work in Hawaii or retire at a certain age and be able to take time off and travel and do the things that they wanted to do. So they essentially wanted to build a business that supported the lifestyle, the type of life that they wanted to design for themselves. And now they're doing like a million dollars a year and still doing it the way that they wanted to. So I think it's really important to understand that success looks differently for different types of entrepreneurs. I saw this tweet today that it was like, there are more stories around entrepreneurship than the IPO to exit story, right? We need to be telling more of these stories. There are more of these businesses than there are of these like unicorn type businesses. And I think that there's an opportunity in whether it's in media or in content and storytelling to glamorize and celebrate these types of businesses because I think they're more relatable. Yeah, they're more relatable. And also the other thing to note about like potential unicorns is When you raise a lot of venture capital, the more capital you raise and the later stage you become, what counts as success for you according to your stakeholders, that gets narrower and narrower. It becomes basically a billion dollar or more exit, usually multiple billions of dollars. It's a higher reward game, but it's also higher risk because you're walking this tightrope and very few businesses make it through all those filters to reach that promised land. Whereas like a quote unquote lifestyle business, like a business that just operates profitably and scales at a reasonable pace. I would never say it's easy to do that. I have so much respect for entrepreneurs. It is not easy at all, but the chances of you being able to do that just statistically are so much higher. So it's not even, oh, do you want to have a 20% chance of building a billion dollar company versus 20% chance of building like a million dollars a year company? It's not like that. It's, do you want to do the thing that can really sustain you and be this incredibly rewarding thing for an indefinite amount of time? Or do you want to do something that most likely is going to fail, but you are going to have to pour everything you have into it over the next several years and maybe never see that exit that you want? Yeah, I think the statistic is like 80% of startups fail in the sense of what the definition of success looks like for investors. So they fail to live up to the expectations to return the amount of money that their investors invested in them or what they were expecting. So like, the likelihood of success when 
in the definition of like the venture capital space yeah. is very small. Yeah. 80% won't. And so it's really interesting when you think about if such a small percentage of companies actually take venture capital or are suitable for venture capital and 80% of those businesses like don't even do what they were supposed to do. <laughs> like what, <laughs> why isn't there more innovation in like funding opportunities and pathways for the other companies that may have slower growth or slower return rate, but could actually guarantee some sort of return yeah. just looking a little bit differently. Totally. And also the corollary of the 80% of them fail is that guys, if you ever feel bad about VCs rejecting, you have to remember that they're mostly wrong. Like the numbers show that they're mostly professionally wrong. <laughs> that is what they do for a living. They are trying to pick correctly. And most of the time they pick incorrectly because that's just the nature of predicting businesses, yep. right? So what is your dream for a grid 110? Like five years from now, 10 years from now, what is your ultimate dream? That is a really great question and a question that I have been sitting with this year. So when we first started it, I don't know that we ultimately knew that what we were building. And then two years in, I kind of took it in a direction. And five years later, here we are. And we went from a hyper-local focused program and community in like downtown LA to more broadly regionally Los Angeles to now I have conversations with other accelerators that they're like, oh, we've heard of you. And I'm like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. From some other, like from New York or something, or we hear about founders who are like, when I explain what we do, because again, in my head, we're still this nonprofit that provides free programs in Los Angeles. And now we have people all across the country that have heard of us. That's wild to me. We had always thought about what expansion could look like kind of pre-pandemic when we did in-person programs. And it was very rooted in physical community and physical spaces. And my dream at that point was wanting to build the hub for innovation and entrepreneurship in Los Angeles. And then when the pandemic hit and we had to go virtual with our programs, really opened my eyes up to, we don't have to take a city by city approach. We could just open the floodgates and see who wants to apply to the program if we have the right partners involved. And so that's kind of how the relationship with Sauston & Co. developed and launching the friends and family program was finding the right aligned partner, very values aligned, very mission aligned. We love their team and felt like there was a hole or a gap in the space of what we were doing locally and wanted to bring that to more people everywhere. So I've kind of just taken it like almost as opportunities arise or as we kind of figure out how to do it. We did a consulting project for an organization in Detroit to help them launch their first fellowship. And so that was really interesting just to take all the things that we've learned and give them somewhat of a like abbreviated playbook and like coaching on how they could launch their own type of program. So I think we're just exploring like what does this next the next five years look like for us? Is it more of these national programs that like we recognize that more of these programs need to exist? So I get excited when I hear about any other program launching. I don't see it as competition. We have an acceptance rate of less than 5%. So we're turning away 94% of companies that come to us. And so they have to go somewhere. There's so many people that need help and support that are building businesses at a very quick rate. I think some of that is trying to figure out, can we do something, build something, design something at scale that is maybe less hands-on, but has a wider reach and is more accessible, maybe something similar to what you were building with Makelane and wanting to create content or take what you know and productize it in a way that can be accessible to a lot more people. So I think that we're trying to figure out what that looks like for us and in our own evolution. But I hope that we are part of the narrative and the story of changing some of these like really horrendous 
funding numbers that we see every year and keep talking about, I hope we're able to make some meaningful progress and move the needle on some of these things so that more founders can get the support that they need. And if it makes sense for them, get the access to capital that they need and to just see shift in the startup ecosystem and landscape that better reflects the world that we live in, in terms of the demographics and the founder makeup. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. My last question to you is, what do you wish you knew when you started your entrepreneurial journey? Everything. I saw this poster at an event one time and it said, commit, then figure it out. And I kind of feel like that's somewhat of what I've been doing. I'm a Virgo. I overanalyze everything to death, overthink everything. And so any major decision takes a lot of thought process for me. I'm trying to get better at just like trusting my instincts and like making faster decisions with things. And so every decision that we've made, I've always just agonized over, is this the right thing to do? Should we do this? And I think sometimes you just have to commit and then figure it out. Like everybody wants the roadmap, the playbook to de-risk a situation. And I definitely wanted to do that as I was stepping into this. Like, how can I make this the safest transition for me possible? But sometimes that doesn't exist, right? The hardest part is just making that commitment and that decision to say yes. And then you'll be able to figure it out. And I think that's how a lot of people have been successful in what they've done is it's like a little bit of fake it till you make it and a lot of being resourceful and curious and finding community and knowing that you can't do this alone. Yeah. And also I think one hack that maybe you and I have taken is we're not necessarily thinking I'm going to build this business or this company. We kind of just do whatever comes up and needs to be done in the moment. And then we accidentally fall into entrepreneurship (laughs) or in my case, being a creator or whatever. Recently, I've been wanting to see life as like a playful experiment. I think it can really serve us because then we're not overthinking the whole, I'm about to start a business, a company, I'm about to do this thing and become a CEO or an entrepreneur. And I think that can be so scary because we think we have to know all these things, but sometimes just having an idea and acting on it, and then it becomes what it wants to be over time. Yeah. Something that I admire about you and going back to that theme of committing and then figuring it out, was like, you do these 100-day challenges, right? You commit. And when you commit, like, you commit. I remember (laughs) your, like, YouTube videos of you in the hospital. You're like, I got to get a video up. I'm, like, kind of dying. but I was literally dying. (laughs) And, but, like, you didn't, there was no agenda. There was nothing that you were trying, like, an end goal to this, right? Like, you were very open about it. And you just, you committed and figured it out. And that's exactly what happened with your TikTok videos. I'm going to commit to doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what works. But you got curious about it. You're like, oh, if I try this or if I do this. And then you found something that worked. You found your space. And it, like, all took off from there. And so I think the fact that you committed and you showed up like every day. Yeah. Even when I'm sure that there were things that were like, I don't know what I'm doing or is any <laughs> is this thing on? Like anybody paying attention? But you just kept at it. Again, with no goal in mind. There was nothing yeah. that you were trying to I don't think you were like, if I do this for a hundred days, I'm gonna become a content creator. Not at all. And I didn't yeah, I didn't even think that would be in the cards for me. I'd never wanted that before. But I do think that I have a profound trust in life. And increasingly, as I get older, I have such a deep trust in the ideas that arise for me. And I've learned to just lean into them. And I think maybe because I also care a lot about spirituality and just personal development, I see these 
kind of random challenges or projects or whatever quirky thing Dolma is up to at any given moment. I see those as actually being an important practice for me on their own. So I kind of just have designated those as part of my job as a human being in this lifetime, even though nobody is paying me to do it or paying me yet to do it. And now I get paid to be a creator, but I had to have that trust first. And you're right. It wasn't like, oh, this is the master plan. It was just like, this is me playing around with the ideas that come up because I see that as an edge of growth for me. So I hope that if anybody can take away anything from our stories, just, yeah, just trusting the ideas that come up for us and the inspiration and the motivation that we have for the thing that is going to get you so far and you'll figure it out. You'll figure out how to do the thing and the right resources and the right people will come. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining. This is lovely. (laughs) Thanks for having me.